Douche. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Wellmates. A podcast about romance novels. About dog care. About Venice Beach. About fish. About Tinder. About anal sex. A lot of anal sex. About fetishizing academia in ways that are both incorrect and <laughs> disturbing. The podcast about the difference between sex and love. Mm. Does it exist? <laughs> podcast about friendship and it's also a podcast about self-annihilation but mostly (laughs) that first thing romance novels and ourselves this week we are not talking about a romance novel dare i about the Pisces. Which was billed as a romance novel for intellectuals by the New York Times. By Melissa Broder. She's the author. She's not the one who said it was a romance novel for intellectuals, which shows both a misunderstanding of what it means to be a romance novel and also what it means to be an intellectual. Wrong on both counts. (laughs) It's like the idea that people would be like, she's the thinking man's sex symbol. And it's like, nope, Nope. I think even thinking men just want the same sex symbols everybody else wants. I don't want to type, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like an idiot can get horny over someone in glasses too. Right. You don't have to have a PhD to think, oh, when that librarian takes her glasses off, she looks really good. Yeah. No, certainly not. Fuck that noise. And I think that kind of gets at like everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It really does. I wanted to do uh, Pisces during Pisces season because one of my very, very good friends lives in California and feels very strongly about the beach. And when this book came out, I immediately thought of her. I don't think she, she will a like Pisces? she is a Pisces happy birthday shout out getting high and sucking toes the Pisces way it is the Pisces way and you know she lives in California she loves the beach she's like deep into this moon stuff that was happening in this book but I don't think this is a book for my friend which one of us should give the summary oh boy I'll give the summary great Thank you for taking that off my plate. The Pisces is about a woman who is working on her PhD in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Um, She goes through a bad breakup and consciously or unconsciously makes a suicide attempt that kind of changes over the course of the novel, her own perspective, because this is told exclusively through her perspective, first person. She moves to California to her successful well-to-do sister's house because her sister is going to be traveling the world with her husband on a series of conferences and stuff. And she has a foxhound uh, that's diabetic and she loves her sister and so she wants to give her this opportunity to kind of check out of what has become a very bad scene and help her out by taking care of the dogs. So our main character Lucy departs, ends up in Venice Beach in this beautiful modernist box beach house and is taking care of this dog and one of the conditions of well she previously punched her ex-boyfriend in the face and one of the conditions her boyfriend gave her in order not to press charges was to take some form of therapy So her sister signs her up for this group therapy for women who have unhealthy relationships with sex and love, which all of us. (laughs) (laughs) A little pithy social commentary there (laughs) right out the gate. That's what people tune in for. So she starts taking this group therapy. She makes friends in the group. She also resents a lot of the group and she starts going on Tinder. And anyways, here's the thing. She meets a merman and they start a sexual relationship and he eventually invites her to go to the sea with him, which actually means death. Like he's going to drown her. I guess we ruin the endings of books here. Mm -hmm, We do. She elects not to go into the bottom of the sea with him. And become a corpse. And become a corpse. Imagine that. She elects not to. She decides to go back. She ends up through 
through her passionate affair with this merman, neglecting the diabetic dog and also drugging the dog. Oh, we're going to go there first now? Because the like, dog dies. <sighs> well, it's just an important plot point I It's skipped. a really important plot point. Um, the she dog, kills the dog. Yeah, she kills the dog. But uh, at the end of the book, she decides that she's going to spend time with her sister instead of checking out. So that's... The Pisces. So I want to start with like a big question, which is why do you think the New York Times thought this was a romance novel for intellectuals? What does that say about the New York Times's opinion of romance novels and intellectuals? I'm going to hypothesize Mm -hmm. that this indicates that the New York Times has never read a romance novel and therefore should not be talking about them in any sort of critical sense. And they think intellectuals are sad. I think the reason why the New York Times was like it's a romance novel because there's very explicit sex scenes and Mm -hmm. there are absolutely no pulled punches both in the quality of the sex that is being had some sex scenes are really awful and others are you know frankly transcendent and I think like that's a ding ding for anybody who's like I've never read a romance novel this must be what bodice busters are like the romance novels don't really traffic in bad sex though no that's not part of the fantasy bad sex it's still like good sex yeah or at least like mediocre yeah but this book is very like it does a great job of describing bad sex sure does I was deeply uncomfortable and I think the reason why (laughs) I'm a little butthurt the reason why I think like the New York Times is like but it's for intellectuals is because like that's a total misread of people who read romance and like a misreading of both the genre but also like part of this problem of fetishizing academia yeah without really understanding academia yeah she's been working on her dissertation which this book calls a thesis incorrect for nine years yeah. And they're only now talking about pulling her funding. Yeah. Like and, that's um, fucked up. That's not how that would go. And also she got funding to write about Sappho, which I think would be really hard to do in this day and age. Yeah. It's like people have been thinking about Sappho for a and long writing ass about time. Sappho for a really long time. I did think she had an interesting argument. I'm sure it already exists. Yeah. About the absences. And yeah. The that, definitely, that definitely exists. That definitely started existing in like the 80s. Easily. 1980s. Maybe 1880s. I don't know. Sappho. 1880s, 1680s, 1580s. People have been reading Sappho for quite some time. So I didn't like that. Yeah, the description of academia is like a really big misstep. Also the idea that like she was understanding her thesis as a book, which is pretty brazen. Yeah. To be like, this is my book. No, it's not. Yeah, or the fact that her department would be like, we're going to pull your funding now, even though you've written the best thing ever. Because I think it would be hard pressed to find a department if they read something that they felt was transcendent that they wouldn't immediately like yeah or like want to put it through their department or like at least give her like some more time or like yeah. give her the like graduation that she was going to have like all of that stuff felt plot pointy in a way that like wasn't fleshed out and yeah like, yeah was like a bare bones it's like this is how academia works and like no it's not yeah you know maybe she chose a fictional university just because she didn't want to have the associations but I don't like her ex-boyfriend who is a geologist but and a documentary also, a filmmaker but also a documentarian you don't go to a university with more than one cardinal direction in the name and get paid to make documentaries for PBS. Yeah, that. And you don't get paid $29,000 a year not to teach in the ninth year of your PhD. She's like checking out books at the library and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, this yeah, isn't she works real. in the library. I'm like, she's teaching. She has to be teaching if she's making that kind of money. Also, that kind of money in that space, no academic who's writing on Sappho is getting that kind of money. I did find it 
reassuring though that she was 38 because sometimes I think about going back to school and then I think I'm too old and I'm 28. There you go. You could go back to school and write about Sappho's absences. Yeah, and I could finish by the time I was 37 and that'd be fine. I wouldn't lose my funding. I wouldn't even have to work. You wouldn't even have to work. You could work at the library. <laughs> yeah, I could have the chillest lifestyle ever. You just have to move to the desert. Yeah, having said that, there is so much in this book that is so fucking real. Mm. Not everyone in the world who reads this book. In fact, most people who read this book aren't going to be like, well, you got your funding? Well, what do you have to say about Sappho? I'm pretty sure I can find Kim Connecticut, aren't you? know, like we're crotchety about academia. You more entitled to be than me. You're yeah. still in it. Been burned by that. I never even applied to PhD programs. <sighs> me neither. I guess I'm starting to realize that it's really easy to talk about a romance novel compared to something like the Pisces. Because a romance novel is a genre and a genre gives you a lot of footholds. Conventions and tropes to hold on to. Yeah, like rules, like good starting points. But like that's one of the things I think that's also why it gets confused in bookstores as like an intellectual romance or a romance for people who don't like romance. And yeah. because like it does follow some of that, like we open on a woman in crisis. So how about we do this? Mm-hmm. We talk about it as if it's a romance novel. Yes. Let's talk about our heroine. Yes. Let's talk about our hero. Yes. We'll of course talk about the sexiest and the weirdest parts because Obviously. that's what we do. Let's talk about it like it's a romance novel. And I think in that relief, we will find or in that process, we'll find our reliefs and make them apparent. Having said that, I have never read a romance novel that had an accurate depiction of academia and compared to, what was it? Where she was the time traveler with the Viking with the sword. Oh God, Until Forever. Until Forever. Compared to Until Forever, this is super (laughs) accurate. Yeah, it's much more accurate than (laughs) Johanna Lindsay's 1990 (laughs) novel. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So our heroine, Lucy, has red hair. Her red hair is graying. That's right. I do love that. Yeah, it talks about the changing of her hair texture. And she goes and gets it dyed auburn. Mm-hmm. And that's the color she normally goes with. Lucy is an intentionally unlikable heroine. Which, here's another thing. I think there are lots of unlikable heroines in romance. I don't think any of them are intentionally so. I don't think that's true. I think I've read romance novels with intentionally unlikable heroines at the start. Like, they become likable over time. I would say I've never read a romance novel that felt like it had an intentionally unlikable heroine for this podcaster, the other two I've read. <laughs> Shana? Shanna? Shanna. I don't think she was intentionally unlikable. I think Kathleen Widowist is like, this is what it's like to be young and free. Mm, okay. I mean, I love Shanna, so. And I think she would describe Shanna as like plucky. Mm-hmm. Lucy is not plucky. No. She's clinically depressed. Let's start there. She's and certifiable. So the way in which her mental illness works, it's hard to parse out whether or not her unlikability is her mental illness or if she's just sort of like a crotchety, mean-spirited life sucker. I don't know. I just, I had a real (laughs) hard time with Lucy. I had a real hard time. And the things that I did eventually start liking about her were deep moments of change or like moments of reflection. Because the things that happened to her are really sad and terrifying. And she has like a sad backstory, like a lot of heroines that we've read. Her mom died when she was very young and her father was sort of absent and her older sister who she does love is in college at the time and goes back to school so she feels really alone in the cataclysmic grief of losing a parent at the age of 11 and then she sort of drifts through everything else 
and ends up with this guy, Jamie, the documentarian in the desert, who she wants to commit to her, but she won't communicate that. And she won't start the conversation about like move in with me or whatever. Mm. And they're not the type of people who get married. And so like there's all of this like, I want you to do this, but I'm not going to start it. She talks a lot about wanting to get married and what that actually means. And I think there's like Lucy is obviously an unreliable narrator because she is so bitter and she's so mean but I think she comes by it honestly you know she's so incredibly selfish mm-hmm. and like most selfish people her intentions and her goals are always kind of couched in a faux self-deprecation until mm-hmm. they're not mm-hmm. until she finally starts to be like I'm killing this dog and I don't care and like there's tends to be stuff about the experience of breaking up with someone and then they immediately start dating someone else and it's like well what's this about is radically relatable and terrifying her replaceability has been made very clear to her by a much younger woman no no she's not younger she's just different no she's younger she's like 29 oh I don't remember that part yeah I think she discovers her replaceability in a really destructive way and she has this great rumination on watching her long-term boyfriend get fat Mm -hmm. and how unfair it was because he just went from like chiseled to lovably fat Mm -hmm. and now he hasn't changed but her understanding of him has changed because she sees it in relationship to herself now just to say she doesn't have that luxury like she can't continue living her life and breeding and she doesn't want to have children but she wants to have the potentiality of having children it's not a book for men and it is like cruel to men Mm -hmm. and it understands the worst parts of men and articulates it in a very prismatically there are so many ways to be a nefarious man in this book the wretchedness and like the disease and the addiction that these women in this group that she goes to is so clearly not about their womanness. Mm -hmm. It's about what has been put on them Mm -hmm. and what has been put on them as a result of of patriarchy needing to perpetuate its own power. Yeah. And like one of the things that I found really hard about this very restricted first person point of view was that I found myself really wanting to look around Lucy. Lucy's perspective is so bitter and so mean, especially to other women, especially Mm. in the first half that I was like, you're not one to talk or name a character chicken horse in terms of her face because you cold clocked your stupid ex who you were with for nine years. Who are you to talk? And like, who are you to tell me that this character who is truly ridiculous and like why make her ridiculous I think this is a book about failed resistance I wanted to punch her boyfriend in the face and I totally understand but she punches her boyfriend in the face and it doesn't work out she tries to kill herself and then she just ends up buying donuts and wrecking her car in her pajamas and the same cop who took care of her with the nose punching situation picks her up and then she tries to resist the group and thinks that she's better than it but that's failed too she realizes she's not better with them even the ones who she considers better you know her friend Claire attempts suicide and is institutionalized Diane ends up having sex with an 18 year old even when she was doing so much better I think it's a book about failed resistance she can't not go on Tinder even though she's been asked to like do a 90 day purge of men but then someone's like listen you haven't been on the dating scene for nine years you gotta get on Tinder I really feel like it's a book about failed resistance and we can't have a likable main character because the world doesn't actually allow her to be likable and like what is likable Mm -hmm. right not to be that third wave feminist but like Mm -hmm. what is Mm likable like it's a problem and you know we talked about this with Austin like it was important to her that 
Emma was her least likable character. Mm-hmm. But Emma came by it honestly because of societal breakages. And I think maybe the main character's ridiculousness, and she is truly ridiculous, is her failed resistance to a ridiculous paradigm. That, sure. That insists, even though she doesn't want children, she wants to have the option. option. That's nuts. That's a nutty thing to do, but I totally understand it. I yeah. totally feel the same way. The fact that you don't want to get married, there is something about having an expensive piece of jewelry that says someone has chosen you. Yeah, but And also, not just someone, but like a man. Yeah, and like someone with the means to put a rock, literally, on your hand, but also this whole thing about like, I don't want to ask or have that conversation I want to be asked and have somebody desire me that much. Yeah, she wants to be desired to the point of madness, and so yeah. she desires to the point of madness. Yeah. When I was reading some of these passages, I was reminded of the ethical slut, and when she talks about romance as a narrative, it's not actually a way of living. Like, no one can live that way. And what she's trying to do is live romantically. And that's impossible. Mm-hmm. And I think this book is taking the position that it's impossible to live romantically because maleness is so inherently destructive. There's no scaffolding in place for you to live romantically, which I think is an interesting way to like redirect the problem. Mm-hmm. But it's not actually... It's not posing any solutions. No, but that's fine. It's not its job. I guess the problem I have with it is that it doesn't realize the badness of romance or the idea of like romantic love in the way that we've been told to understand it. I think that's a problem of this book though where it's like it doesn't actually... That's what I'm saying. But like I think it misunderstands romance and like so then romance gets categorized as obsession. It gets categorized as mental illness. It gets categorized as toxicity. It gets categorized as like spontaneity that actually harms because you're not down for the spontaneity even though you feel like you're forced to. And like in that way like the real romance of this book is her sister's support and the stupid fucking dog that she murders. Yeah, but I think that's just love. I think maybe what the book is saying is like you've got to peel romance off of love because romance makes love destructive because romance is obsession. Romance is like a singular connection with a singular person. Mm -hmm. Like romance is madness. Certainly in the terms of this book. But also, like, I think as we understand it, like, I have a hard time thinking about a romance novel or a romantic comedy or, you know, a great love story as Mm -hmm. we understand them. This is an especially bad romance. Romance is destructive in this book. Mm -hmm. And, like, the desire for it, she's one-sided until she's not. And then it gets really bad Mm -hmm. whenever it's reciprocated. But I have a hard time, like I said, thinking of, like, another romantic object or another romantic text that isn't a great deal of obsession or madness or singularity like a myopic. Sure. I think romance is certainly myopic. Like I'll certainly give you that one. I don't know. What's missing from this is like gaiety and joy. Like this is all of literally the worst things about romance magnified to the point of true destruction. Part of me is like I get that project. I understand what that's saying. I think that's like the Romeo and Juliet line go slowly go slowly like think gunpowder and flame like they kiss and are consumed so like saw that in this a lot but also it's like the moments of joy in this book were so oasises in the desert it's just like there's so much like unrelenting capital R romance is bad and so much of that like I never disagreed but I didn't like agreeing Mm -hmm. and I think like that's a weird position to be in especially since like 
like it sort of follows the beats of a romance. Like we meet Theo, our merman, at about the time we would meet uh, the hero in a typical romance. We don't meet Theo for a while. Yeah, we meet him on like page 50. And he's not the first man that she meets or has sex with, which is a decidedly... Departure. A big departure, yeah. Yeah, she has these two awful Tinder dates. Yeah, she meets two guys on Tinder. I want to ask this personal question. Mm-hmm. You and I have not been single in the new millennium of dating. No, we have not. I don't know what I would do. One of the things that scares me the most about people who are single is Tinder. Why does Tinder scare you? Well, just hearing people talk about it, they're like, there's always like a next best. Mm -hmm. Like even if you find something good, you know how much else is out there. But also the idea that like not getting matched with people, devastating. Just thinking about it to me is devastating. Whereas like when you meet someone at a party like I did, you know, or a bar, you can kind of... (laughs) couch it as like not looking for romantic enticement but if you're on tinder like the person's like you're not a romantic partner bye like there's no way they're like oh i just thought we would be good friends and that's why i didn't swipe right on you like now we will never talk like you know there's like nothing redeemable about you understood by tinder and think about like the material you that tinder is is banking on yeah it's like three things you can answer ironically or not and you can upload like a set number of photos and if you're a dude they better contain a dog and an outdoors photo and like a picture of you at your sister's wedding so you look non-threatening with other women although that's confusing and i don't think you should do it there was something about the first two men she matched with Mm -hmm. her following those to their bitter end that was so like fuck yeah you would like if you didn't understand tinder you would be like i've got two matches time to make it work whereas like if you're actually someone who like understands tinder is like living in the world of tender like you know that there's gonna be 15 more and then i was like well what if there's not 15 more what if those are your only two like what a fucking drag mm-hmm. and then she has sex with her lift driver too oh yeah i hated that scene yeah no condom he comes in her she never gets <laughs> tested the book doesn't really give us time for her to get tested i mean but still like and the fact that there was such a throwaway line about like i said not to come in me and he did anyway and i was like her contrasting inability to both care for her own corporeal form but also be concerned about it yeah. was like paradoxically frustrating to me in a way that like it's actually hard for me to put into words because like when she cared about her corporeal form i was like okay i'm on board but then she'd like do shit like that and then like when does she care about it that's a great question whatever she's dressing it up for someone else's desire yeah i think she's about self-annihilation and i i think like of course she doesn't it's not really a throwaway line but of course she like it's a throwaway line to her yeah that he came inside her i hated that but also there's something about like being come inside that like like she just got out of a long-term relationship for the past nine years you know yeah I like mean. taboo is not <laughs> the same sure i think that idea that you were like trying to look outside of her perspective and see what's around her really speaks to the claustrophobia that the book creates and a sense of anxiety within the narrator's perspective like a desperation to get out of it which is like i think a empathetic way to connect your reader with the writer of course yeah i mean in a lot of ways this didn't feel dissimilar from my first experience of reading catcher in the rye where it's 
it's like I do feel bad for this character the things that happen to them are interesting like when she meets Theo the mermaid and her first initial discussions with him I found fascinating the description of his tail mm. was outstanding yeah. yeah like like the envisioning of this merman was great his smells his feels the way he looks in the moonlight and in the water and then what he looks like on land and like how that difference manifests like this book is tactile and I loved that but her perspective is so mean and so bitter and so what 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 that it was like you know like an eclipse like a solar eclipse and like I know that there's stuff on the edges but like it's so present and I know I'm not supposed to look too brightly at it and I'm supposed to stay in the POV that I'm in but it's like I wanted to get out I wanted to see around her I think that's intentional I think so too I think it's like you don't want to be in like I never felt sorry for her because to me I felt like her choices and her actions I couldn't understand but her perspective and her reasoning made perfect sense to me yeah she was logical she wasn't just logical I think she was just like spitting truth yeah like even when she's talking about the other women in her group and Mm -hmm. the things that irritate her and them talking about being triggered Mm -hmm. and them talking about feeling re-traumatized and everything and how exhausted she is just listening to them and also getting fixated on the little things about them and wanting to connect with the women that she understands is more like more like her not more like her better like the societally better ones is deeply relatable I never got the impression that she was like this one's the most like me she was like oh god I hope this one's the most like me Mm -hmm. because you know if I'm a chicken horse or chicken horse is another great example of failed resistance she wants to fight back against this man but instead she ends up running over his wife or trying to run over his wife with a car like that's failed resistance because the object of your ire can't ever really like what are you gonna do if you actually attacked him physically like lucy does he could crush you physically he can't love you anymore so like the object of your ire can't get your ire because the goal is to get him to love you again right but she talks with claire about this Mm -hmm. and the fact that like men can sense when you have another dick around but then that's a failed resistance yep she's trying to actually she doesn't need him and then when she finally gives in he's like actually megan is pregnant and that's why i've been talking to you like i need to figure myself out i need to figure myself out but really he's not because he's also hitting on her which is just so fucking typical once you get pregnant they definitely start looking other places but this discussion led me to this line in the book that i felt was super resonant she talks about going to one of those new age stores and oh yeah, at the yeah, crystals yeah, 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 and stuff. yeah yeah she says in the store was hope and hope was what separated me from the flat expanse of the rest of my life it was like a line a gateway that stopped me from being swallowed and i think that's true for a lot of culture that is considered femme and i think it's true for romance novels because romance novels present this narrative of like a man who doesn't say much but is thinking so much about you and it's all very flattering all the time even when he thinks unflattering things about you it's particular specific and you know really a reverse compliment yeah exactly like that's false hope but does she say that the new agey stuff is false hope no she just calls it hope well she talks about the fact that she buys those crystals for 250 dollars and puts them in her bathtub and nothing happens and she's just sad again i mean that's also like consumer culture you can't like buy the pain away well you can't buy the pain away in a romance novel Hmm, that's true (laughs) but it's like it's a reprieve and i think it's a reprieve she yeah it's a reprieve 
Yes. And I think like that is different than false hope. And I think that's like one of the ways in which this book is interesting to me in the way that it talks about reprieve and the way the merman himself becomes a kind of very particular reprieve. I want to talk about the merman. I want to talk about... Um, yeah, we haven't even gotten to the key, key element here. Um, he's a mermaid. He's a mermaid. Ugh, he's a mermaid who like gets it and has a heroin addict ex-girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a little bit worried about and also like loves to go down on Lucy and is like super good at it and like god there's this weird moment where she's like his tail is like sashimi but like my vagina is like sashimi because it's like a little bit salty and like a little bit flesh and like a little bit blood and a little bit meat and she I was talks like, about she doesn't say sashimi but she talks about the smell of his tail and how it's probably what pussy smells like yeah also this book says the word pussy which I wish romance novels did mm-hmm. yeah I mean sure I wish romance novels said pussy and cunt I always do like it when a modern romance says cunt Sylvia Day doesn't shy away from the C word but like Theo he is the fantasy right he's the fantasy made flesh in a very particular way like he's super handsome he's young he's chiseled but like not in a way that's unapproachable like he doesn't have washboard abs he's like really strong arms because he's a swimmer and he's really pale because he's never in the sunlight yeah and he's got a super pale dick uh huh but his balls are even which is more than she can say for some of her other lovers right and I like that his hair is always wavy and he's like you know really sweet he sounds like a wonderful romance hero except what he demands is also self-annihilation totally he's just like everybody else like the guy who fucks her on the bathroom floor demands that she goes through self-annihilation the guy who (laughs) she convinces to jack off in front of her instead of having sex with her he demands self-annihilation which is you know it's very dorkin which I dig as you know yeah sex listening to her like work through something she's like he is truly like subservient to me because he went down on me forever and then she's like but actually I had to be super vulnerable for him like I had to like open myself up like that and oh my god the scene where she gets her bikini wax also just like the scene where she's talking to a mermaid on a rock at like three o'clock in the morning on Venice Beach and she's apologizing and she's like it might take me a long time to come he's like I hope it takes all night and I was like it takes as long as it takes Lucy yeah god fucking own it a little bit. I like how your problems with the book are really like you're worried about Lucy. You're like, she's not using a condom. And like, oral sex takes as long as it takes, Lucy. It's like, she's a book character. She's like the vessel to make us understand something. Well, the things that I understood were just indignation and fear. Like, here's the thing. Like, we're talking about, like, we use this podcast to talk about books that have the explicit project of just like giving pleasure. There's nothing, you know, beyond that's their project yeah and they like give pleasure in varied ways of course they have like the idea of like a romance that is central right Mm -hmm. the happily ever after which this book does not really have not even in the kind of roundabout ways that I wish most romances would be punk rock enough to pursue and this book has like the very it's hard for me to talk about it I'm realizing because I'm used to talking about things that are meant to give pleasure and either they succeed at that or they fail at that but this book has a much more complicated project And so it's hard for me to be like, did it succeed? Did it fail? I mean, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I think like the embodiment of the merman was a success. There's also like ways she breaks that though. She talks about his vulnerabilities in like really disturbing ways. I liked that. I liked the fact that once he's on land, he begins to like desiccate ever so slightly. And like somehow like that because it was like a speculative fiction thing. And like, here's a thing that you've made 
flesh here are its rules yeah and so even in the rules of like it's abject where like he becomes translucent and like that moment when Dominic comes running out of the dog comes running out of the pantry and scares him half to death and he like turns into something like black shadow for a moment where he like isn't the fantasy merman anymore like he's something like his own fear yeah you liked that as like a hero or did you just like that because it was like a good it was a great description and I think like the setting and like I also liked him in terms of vulnerability and like I didn't see that as particularly dissimilar from other ways that heroes are made vulnerable like his vulnerabilities are like more physical than most heroes that we've seen and I liked that too I liked the elements of him being out of his element and like the fact that she has to work so hard to like get him into the beach house in this like little wagon I mean like that's a tragically comic hilarious little moment where she's like dragging him up the beach and like there's some real fear there of discovery and also like he's like you can't tell anybody about me they're gonna lock you in a madhouse and I'm like okay yeah but that's like a reversal of like he's never the one who doesn't have the upper hand until she rejects him Mm -hmm. he is even able to leave her beach house on his own and she doesn't feel entitled to chase after him or physically stop him yeah because she's embarrassed about what she said and feels bad but I also think there's something about you can't stop a man who's leaving you oof ouch I don't know but like that scene of him crawling away though it's like ugh it's uncomfortable like that's the thing when I was reading it I was like wow this is so uncomfortable this is devastating but then I was like she could stop him like why doesn't she stop him and then I was like she feels bad I don't think it's because she feels bad I think it's because she feels incapable then it was just like doubly crumbling I think you're right I think Lucy feels incapable and like that's really hard I don't think she ever actually has the upper hand I don't think they're ever in an egalitarian state like she talks about about them sharing a womb and like they're the sea together all this stuff and like how he was like worshiping at the altar of her or whatever whenever he went down on her but like she let him I think it's that false hope I think it's the crystals in your bathtub I think it's like a reprieve but she soon finds out like no he wants to kill her I think like this is the difference between false hope and like reprieve so she's like I decided to skip group I was too deeply involved with Theo now what would I even tell them I'd met a merman who might disprove all their theories about love why would I choose to recover unless everything was total and complete shit if there was one sparkle one possibility of getting as high as I could off another person why would I throw that potentiality away you had to hold out for these moments until you knew for sure they were gone and never coming back I didn't want group to ruin the way I felt Fuck. So can you talk about how that illustrates the difference between reprieve and false hope? It's because she like knows that it's destructive. That decision to skip group because she knows that they're going to tell her that it's wrong anyway. Like that's not a reprieve. That's not like. But she thinks they're wrong in that moment. Mm, she thinks does she? she's like, yeah, I feel like she's coming around to their way of thinking and doesn't like it in that moment. No, I think in that moment, she's saying that it's worth it. Like all the stuff they're resisting is actually worth it for that one moment. Mm. Later in the book, she talks about going to see Claire and Claire Mm. is kind of recovered. And uh, she thinks to herself, like, this isn't worth it Mm -hmm. to be this stable because you lose all the sparkle, which is, I think, romance. The idea of being like worth dying for and suffering for. And I think that's part of the reason she doesn't stop Theo is because she wants to watch someone suffer for her. Mm -hmm. And because of her, mm-hmm. but not just because of her, because of his desire for her, but like, like a passive way to make someone suffer because mm-hmm. of her, because she isn't giving him enough and he is full of longing mm-hmm. like that reversal. But of course that's false because
because then she goes to the dock every night for two weeks and stays up all night and he later reveals that he was just watching her but he had to know like that's him having the upper hand in actuality mm-hmm. and like the power paradigm never flips between mm-hmm. them he's always got the upper hand even though he's a mystical creature he's like if you revealed my existence people would think you were crazy no one would come looking for me I wouldn't be in danger you would be in danger which is just gaslighting <laughs> you know I think the crystals are false hope. I also understand them as a reprieve, but I'm having a hard time understanding the difference between false hope and a reprieve or like where you see the difference. I think the way that I'm thinking of the difference is in time, right? Like a reprieve isn't meant to be forever and false hope has a kind of continual um, maneuver inside of it that like once you discover the falsity, it's crushing, but a reprieve doesn't operate in that sense. Like a reprieve is like you get a pause, but pauses don't last forever. And like you're going to return to the work of either making yourself better or like whatever it is the reprieve is giving you. It's a breath space. So a reprieve, you don't believe anything's going to get better. No, a reprieve is like, I'm tired now, but that doesn't mean I'm done. And I'll return to false hope is like, well, that thing didn't work. So now I'm going to try this thing. And that's what I'm going to hang my hat on. You don't hang your hat on a reprieve, I guess, is my thing. Romance novels end. And maybe that's the difference. So like when you made the comparison that like, like crystals are like romance novels in this particular way. I understand those two things differently. And the way that I understand them differently is like romance novels end and you can get another one, but the way in which they operate themselves is like they finish like a film. The sound that my brain is making is like an old fashioned movie tape where it's like, like the tape is over. And then you like return to your life. You leave the fantasy and you walk into the sunlight and you're like, oh, it's so bright. But Whereas yeah. like false hope is different. Like because once the falsity is revealed, there's something awful there. Right. So you would say the crystals are false hope? Potentially, yeah. Okay. I would say that there is something that lingers about romance novels though and the influence that they have culturally. And I think it's laid out in this book. The idea of you carry these ideas with you. The idea that someone would throw away their life and obsess over you the idea that you can have this clean happily ever after or just the idea that like men are thinking about you in this way even though they don't say it like that's a possibility and you know it's a possibility the possibility was presented to you by this like be it romance novels be it romantic comedies this narrative of romance I think is false hope I mean that's really dark but I just I think my boyfriend loves me Mm -hmm. I don't think he loves me I don't think anyone can love me romantically in the way that I want to be loved and I think that's because of things like books and movies and culture and I think the books and movie and culture come from a place of obsession Mm -hmm. right like Byronic Mm -hmm. kind of and like even though Byron's obsessions were so fleeting we are left with his text that make us believe that that is how someone should feel about us forever. And that even though we get fat and old and lose our value as women in the world, someone will still feel that way about us forever until we die. Well, it's because you have to die young and beautiful for that to work. But I think there's something about the idea of a happily ever after and it's like implied continuation. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about this with Persuasion, which Mm -hmm. was her mother getting married to her father. That's where the romance novel would have ended. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, like everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. And like it's impossible to sustain that 
that like new love, that sparkle. And I think that new love is the thing that feels the most like what she's describing, the high that she's chasing. And it's just impossible to stick around. Right, because it can't stay because it is a high. It's a high. And so every hit you get after your initial high is going to be less. And that's how this like addiction metaphor slash reality is working. But like every time we meet Theo, he's a little less magical and a little less great. And uh, this idea that even if you're not getting that high from new love, that doesn't mean that someone doesn't secretly love you because that's a possibility. You know, that idea of like that guy in class, he's secretly thinking about you sexually. Like that super handsome man on the train, maybe he wants you. Like it both doesn't matter and it doesn't affect your life. Mm -hmm. And it's also not likely to be true for most people. Mm -hmm. And I think romance novels are kind of peddling in this idea of like the unseen world, the unsaid world that surrounds us, that's all full of romantic feeling. Which by the way, this book at one point says, could you write a dissertation around feeling? And it's like, yes, people have been doing it. It's called affect theory. You can definitely write an academic As many work people have. And continue to do can, in a really and, big way. And will for many years to come until the paradigm changes again. Um, I understand how romance as obsession and romance as destruction and romance as annihilation but also just like the more like subtle versions of this harm right yeah are indeed harmful and I think like of anything that's true you know what I mean like you know chocolate and too much is harmful and like you know whatever but the thing about the train is like I don't know because like you have like however long your commute is and you're like oh that guy's cute oh he's reading a book that I like maybe we'd get along maybe in a different life where it's like you know you have a universe rub up against somebody else's and like if it doesn't derail your day to day and it doesn't you know fuck up your life like enjoying that fleeting pleasure of like ah oh, maybe he does think I'm cute or like my hair looks great today and like maybe he noticed and I'll never know but I get to walk away with like this thing that I've invented that like I feel good about as long as it doesn't make the bad turn I don't see it as harmful I would argue that it is inherently a bad turn and I would say let's consider the fact why does that make you feel good because it feels good to be validated by others even in your own mind but how is someone wanting to fuck you with without saying it validating. How is someone wanting to fuck you validating? Isn't that a bad way to be validated? Because as this book eventually confesses, Claire says it's not hard to get laid. That's true. And she discovers this when she has sex with her Uber driver. The fact that you would feel better about yourself and have like a moment of positivity, that you would have a moment of sparkle because you can imagine that a stranger on a train wants to get all up in your guts has to do with the fact that you have put value on this stranger on the train. And why have you put value on them that you think is transferable via their desire for you? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's desirability. Like, it's that thing. And like, desirability is the result of bad culture because desirability as this book points out has more to do with power than it does with like any kind of instinct or any kind of real connection like she desires to be friends with Diane and Claire because she sees them as the more culturally valuable people Mm -hmm. she wants to have sex with handsome younger men because she understands that they are more culturally valuable people and will transfer their value to her by their associations with her 
Mm-hmm. If you see a handsome stranger on a train and you're like, <laughs> it's because you understand them as culturally valuable. And if they understood you in the same way, that would validate you. That would make you seen. That would make you matter. Yeah, but I think like that's the bridge too far for me where it's like seen is different than matter. And there's a difference between the titter of being noticed versus like being catcalled, which is calling you into being in a way and commenting on you physically and saying that you're in the world in a particular way. Like there's like a dark side. Who are the type of people who catcall and who are the type of people who you imagine are desirous of you on the train? Point taken. But like it doesn't, seem to me that and like this you know societal conditioning of course but like desirability obviously has to do with power but there are ways in which desirability the first move isn't a power equation and I think like this book is talking about the ways in which that power equation is constantly coming up with not only negative answers, but like really complicated negative sequences. Diane, for instance, is both desirous of inappropriately young men, like her son's friend who's 16, and still having sex with very hot tennis pros who are 22. And like the difference between 16 and 22 is the age of consent, but like this book isn't really dealing with with the other differences, you know, brain formation and like other stuff. And so like the way in which like the calculus of desire in this book is truly and always negative and especially about women, but also about men. It doesn't feel to me like the full experience of how desire operates in the world. Could you give me an example of desire initially not being part of a power equation? Maybe where the equation is more balanced because like there are different kinds of power, right? And like the one that's like immediately coming to mind is like Princess Leia and Han Solo, where it's like she has a ton of political power and is powerful in and of herself, but like he has the kind of like masculine, irrescrapable power, right? So like those are kinds of powers where the equation isn't totally in balance, but is more balanced than the equations that we see in this. But she ends up a slave in a metal bikini. Kills. And he's blinded in carbonite for three years. But like, she says, I love you. And he says, I know. Yeah. And then it's like flipped in the next movie. I don't think this is correct. I mean, do you believe that Star Wars is creating a egalitarian romantic relationship? No, I'm not saying that. But like, I'm saying that like, I think there's a way in which this like has a discussion of desirability that feels darkly hatched that isn't dealing with the other kinds of ways that like desirability moves and like the moves in which it can make that aren't just nasty. I think there's something... So we start off with her and her relationship with Jamie. Mm -hmm. And she comes to a realization that Jamie isn't attractive anymore. Not Mm -hmm. really. But he can still maintain his cachet, Mm -hmm. his cultural cachet. While if she lets herself go which is an inevitability that comes with aging when you're a woman, Mm -hmm. she's done for. And that power imbalance, she seeks to right by showing him that he needs her more than she needs him. Mm -hmm. It backfires on her, thus lowering her power in the equation. And thus she goes to Los Angeles and is seeking out sexy younger men in order to suck up their power by demonstrating how desirous they are of her. And she is dealing with other women. Although Dr. Jude refutes this and is eventually like, I would rather 
rather be alone than be with this man I didn't love anymore. And Chicken Horse is like, I don't think I'm ever going to be ready for a relationship because the other one went so wrong and I just don't think I'm cut out. Like I'm not the type of person who can manage that. Like there are examples of people, but they're not creating an egalitarian relationship. They're opting out. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of times when like you might see someone and be like, they're in my league on whatever conscious or subconscious level. Mm -hmm. You're like, this person's in my league. I read once that the relationships that were most successful Mm -hmm. were for people between people who both thought the other person was a little bit outside of their league. Mm -hmm. But if you thought your person, your partner was significantly out of your league or, you know, below your station, Mm -hmm. your relationship wouldn't work. And there was never a relationship where someone was like, same, equal. Yeah, we're both sevens. Yeah, we're both sevens. Here we are. Mm-hmm. There isn't romance in that. There isn't romance in being like, hey, we're both approximately of the same station culturally based on all of these factors. Let's settle down together. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's no romance in that. There's romance in the idea of like this completely unattainable, handsome, wealthy, young man wants me. Can you believe it? Little old peasant girl, me, who doesn't even realize she's beautiful. I guess I must be if he likes me. And then it cuts to his perspective and he's like, not only is she beautiful, she's also so funny and smart. I hope she realizes it. I recently rewatched She's Out of My League. Uh huh. TJ Miller's character has a very complex read of how to come to the conclusion of your own league and how to like maneuver through and find somebody else's like you get a plus one if you're an artist and you get like a negative one if you live with your parents and like it's so complex and like one of the things that I found tiresome is like TJ Miller's character but like the equations itself but like it's also kind of true like that negotiation of like what is a plus and what is not and Uh like how you figure that plus like you're just base material as like your starting point I mean have you ever like had someone who you were like wow you're really good looking and they seem really into you and then it's like oh you were homeschooled (laughs) (laughs) I was saying there is never real like sploosh desire without a power equation that puts you at a lower level that you want to get up to that homeschool is too real (laughs) homeschooled real or worse yet they were just talking to you to get to your friend (laughs) your shy hot friend Uh, I do have shy hot friends you know what I mean like I'm just uh, I'm having a really hard time thinking of an instance when desire isn't some kind of power equation and I think ultimately like even if you're a woman and like you're a seven whatever that means and you understand the man across from you as a seven and you're both of the same race that matters and you're both of the same socioeconomic status like you're egalitarian in every other way he's always going to have the upper hand by virtue of being a man and you're lucky to have him did you read that essay dick is plentiful and of little value Mm-mm. There's this great essay that this woman wrote. I can't remember what for. And it's called Dick is Plentiful and of Little Value. And she was like, how men understand women as plentiful and of little value 
but it's 50-50. Like, why would we ever not understand them the same way? And it's because they have more cultural cachet by virtue of being a man. Sure, but women have a sell-by date. Which comes from the cultural cachet of being a man. Mm-hmm. Age. Sean Connery. Weight. Even if you're like a super desirable, super sexy woman, but you're overweight, they will want to fuck you. Yep. But they won't want to fuck you in the way that you want to be fucked, which is to say they don't want to introduce you to their friends necessarily. Or at least that's certainly what culture says. Well, that's what happens. There's a special name for men who are desirous of women with more flesh. And it's alliterative. Yeah. There's no name for men who like exceptionally thin women. There's no special name for that. Dickheads. Because that's the default. Right. There's nothing. Don't say dickheads. I mean, exceptionally thin women. Like if I met a dude who said I only date exceptionally thin women, the first thing I would think is like, you're an ass. I think that whenever men are like, only date Asians. Yeah. Dudes who say shit like that, it's like your ass is showing Mm. and it's on your face. But also if a man was like, I'm a chubby chaser, I would be like, that would also be terrible. It's like you just like, but they're fine. They talk like that all the time. They're able to. Mm -hmm. What was your weirdest part? what was my weirdest part like there's lots of weird stuff in this book there's so much weird fucking shit in this book she Um, pees in a drugstore she pees herself yeah I would say that was one of the weirdest parts for me (laughs) this is the weirdest part for Mm -hmm. me because of course there's this like permeating nausea around what's happening with the dog throughout Mm -hmm. the book and Mm -hmm. like oh my god Mm -hmm. what she's doing Mm -hmm. with the dog Mm -hmm. where's the dog Mm -hmm. is the dog okay that is so fucking brilliant yeah it's very anxiety what a perfect device and just being like she's gonna kill this dog This dog that actually loves her unconditionally, Mm -hmm. she can't deal with. Also that her sister loves and is worried about. Yeah, no, like in the parlance of other romantic films, this was the ticking time bottom on the speed bus. But the point is (laughs) to demonstrate that she doesn't actually want unconditional love. Mm -hmm. She wants conditional love Mm -hmm. because the conditions are what shows that she is rising to the occasion. Mm -hmm. um, Or failing to rise because, again, she's like a deeply incapable character. I think she's working within the parameters of society has given her and I think it's impossible to actually interrogate whether or not she's effective because the odds are so stacked against her yeah but like they're also not right she's like a white woman from an affluent background who's doing a PhD program like she's like she has a hard road to sew born a woman with a dead mom but then also she has other kinds of privileges a rich sister to like maneuver into when her committee's like you've been here nine years we're about to pull your funding and your boyfriend's leaving you even someone as privileged as her is flailing like this yeah flailing is a great word the water imagery and like pulling that forward like she says at multiple points where she felt like she's drowning before she gets to the ocean like she feels like she's drowning in Mm. the desert and like that's brilliant the way that this book talks to itself is really good she's never in the ocean throughout the course of the book no she never goes swimming she never goes swimming but I mean like I feel like I'm flailing Mm -hmm. I feel like I have every privilege and I'm just a fuck up yeah and I don't feel like that makes me a bad person or incapable you're also not gonna kill your beloved sibling's dog i don't know that okay i mean like yeah when you said that this book was radically relatable i also agree like the flailing all of this like not knowing but also just like a project that you love also just the stuff about like i don't want to be married but i want someone to want to marry me Mm -hmm. i don't want to have a kid but i want to be able to have a kid yeah i don't 
don't really want to be in love, but I want to be insanely desired by people around me. To the point of their own madness. Of their own madness. And I'm willing to, you know, maybe push myself to a point of madness to have that kind of cachet, to have that kind of power. Like, yeah, what would I give away? What of myself would I give up for this ultimate power of being desired, being wanted, being air quotes loved? in this particular romantic way. Like, what would I give up of myself? And just looking at my life now, I've given up a lot. I've given up a lot to have someone be like, I want to move in with you. I want to help you pay for utilities. That's real. I love you so much. I want to help take care of your cat. Like, you know, like I think about all the fucking compromises Mm -hmm. and I've gotten out really lucky. Doesn't that fucking blow? Yeah, it does. I'm going to answer that. It sucks that you have to give up so much of yourself. She talks about whenever she's sitting on the dock waiting for him Mm -hmm. and how she feels like it's a purifying ritual. And that was also so relatable. The withholding from yourself, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, as a symbol of your contrition. As a symbol of your contrition. I remember like I was younger and I thought I was getting fat and that my boyfriend wouldn't want to have sex with me if I got fat and thus developed an eating disorder. And like reading about her feeling purified or like lemonade, Beyonce talks about it in lemonade. Mm -hmm. The idea of like withholding from yourself so much so that you can be like worth, like, you know, thinking of all the shit you go through to make yourself desired and to like get evidence of that that's legible to other people because Mm -hmm. that's the other thing. She talks about the wedding ring being important Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if it's a big diamond. She doesn't Mm -hmm. talk about that. She just talks about having a ring. Yeah. Like making your value to someone else legible is all the things you give up to do that. She almost gave up her life at the end of the book. The thing that fucked me up, uh, and this is my weirdest part, I was convinced that she was going to follow Theo, the amazing merman, into the depths of the Pacific. Uh And she's like, how many others have there been? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't ever lie to her, which I kind of appreciate, but also like, whatever. He doesn't have to. Right. But he says 17, and then she envisions the 17 corpses of women tied to the bottom of the ocean, and then like, no, that as soon as to the dock yeah as soon as her body is tied there he'll just be on the hunt for another woman to like love and lose himself in and then like coax into the sea a la siren and I was like she would have done it if she were the only one yeah she would have done it if she were the only one and further there are 17 women we don't know what happened to them like did anyone look for them probably not exactly and she's like what are you gonna do with my suitcase that's the thing like I thought about is this really suicide because she brought a prop. And like they always say, like one of the signs of someone about to commit suicide is that you kind of lose this attachment to your worldly possessions. And so her bringing her suitcase out to the rocks, I was like, does part of her believe that she's going to become a mermaid and need her sundresses? I know. I also had that. I'm like, ooh. Nobody's talking about how the magic of this is going to work and how you're going to turn into a pretty, pretty mermaid. But she also talks about the fact that she asks him, like, what are you going to do with the suitcase so that people don't worry about me? Mm -hmm. Even as selfish as she is, she's like, oh shit, I don't want people to know that I drown. Mm-hmm. Also, they'll never find the body. Yeah. And literally, he was just going to have her tie herself up and he was going to tie her to the bottom of a dock. That's His it. His garden of women. What the fuck? Like, I honestly knew he was some kind of siren from the moment he showed up. Totally. Once I got far enough in the book, I was like, there's no happily ever after here. Mm-hmm. I mean, she gets as close as she possibly can with him, but like, he's a siren. Like, he's there to kill her. But also, there's this weirdest part for me. I mean, she talks about the fact that she like starts shitting herself constantly <laughs> from missing him. Yeah, and that I was, was weird. like, holy fuck. But I <laughs> never missed anybody that much. I've 
never shit myself for missing someone. Knock on wood. <laughs> but like, that's like the thing is like, you're like, oh, he has some kind of magical power. It's like she's going through a detox. Like it's like low key train spotting situation. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like she's pregnant, but she's not. Right. She's just, <laughs> and uh, I think one of the weirdest parts for me is that she's clearly in this manic state from mm-hmm. being in love and she becomes the most productive she's ever been. Yep. And I do think there is this like constant fetishization of work that is created in an unbalanced state. Right. Like that's her best work that she's done ever. And like she can only do it in this like entirely destructive, toxic awful place yeah and there's like that's the understanding of art is that it comes from a destructive toxic place like good art comes from a destructive toxic place don't agree yeah I don't think that was appropriately confronted I do feel like every problem this book presents is presented as a problem Mm -hmm. but that wasn't problematized enough for me Mm -hmm. sexiest bit oh wow when the sex scenes were good Mm -hmm. in this book they were so good but there were moments where like in a romance novel I feel like if the writer is on a physical role like corporeal role describing things they don't get caught up in shit like metaphor in the inner turmoil and this book did that from time to time and I was like god damn it you know like I was just getting into it one of the sexiest parts for me is when he touches her foot and then squeezes her ankle and goes up to her calf that was a sexy part but I mean the sex scenes in this when they're good there is a difference between good sex and bad sex the good sex is so good oh my god when he goes down on her when she was on her period that Mm -hmm. was wild yeah that was wild they're like touching like the center of the universe and I was like what the fuck are we doing here and then she gets blood on the white couch and I was like why the fuck do you have a white couch oh but she talks about the fact that she tries to act like she doesn't care and it's there (laughs) and I was like god damn it that's real that's so real she's like I'm trying to be cool I'm a cool girl I'm cool I'm down and she's like like, also trying to be like I'm as into this as you Mm -hmm. like I am not at all worried worried about about my sister's five thousand dollar couch yeah yeah sexiest part for you definitely when he's going down on her on the rocks that first time and like there's like moonlight on the water and like she has that whole like weird scene where she's like take forever and he's like we're gonna do this until you're done and I'm like, I'm into that. I liked that until it got into the whole, like, we are one. Gemini, yeah. Pisces. Yeah, that was weird. Star constellations. That's why that's not my sexiest part, because it really devolved. It devolved really quickly, too. Like, the physical part of it was great, because I like the envisioning of, like, both his tail. Like, really, the description of his dick was incredibly not sexy to me. She refers to it as alabaster, and I'm like, I guess he doesn't get a ton of sunlight down there. No. So, like, fine. And he's uncut, which makes sense to me that they wouldn't have, like, circumcision, circumcision under, under the, the sea. sea. That makes sense to me but like like the other part his is, tail forms at the bottom of his butt yeah and after his genitals i was like that solves a lot of problems really easily so many problems gonna get into yeah. in the mermaid's kiss can't wait but that his scales start higher up and yeah. like that's why it like looks like a wetsuit oh, and, and like, it talks about how it starts off as moles yeah and then they get closer together and then they get smoothed out and yeah it scales i also love that again this book i guess this isn't sexy it's just yeah. something that i really loved is like his tail is sharp like fish scales yeah it hurts it it hurts scrapes yeah and I loved 
how tactile and how this smell. Yeah, and he's smelly. He smells like barnacles and like salty dead fish. She also has the best description of how a dog smells, which is like a <sighs> roast chicken. Yeah, and the soft spot in Dominic's neck. This dog, listeners, the dog is as real as the mermaid and for sensuous. sure. And I do think there's actually, even though she doesn't have a romantic relationship with this dog, there is a lot of like parallel to bear in this like singular relationship with an animal and an isolated different part of space yeah and like the way that like he doesn't like her to like put her face in a particular part of his neck but he like allows it. it and like because he like intrinsically understands that she's like broken and sad like I knew this dog was gonna die like I felt that ticking that anxiety as I was supposed to feel it's really measured throughout the book like it escalates yeah. slowly and well but like I was very upset when Dominic died when the dog dies there's this really interesting part where she's explaining it to Claire and Claire is like the dog was a drug addict and it's like well yeah because she kept drugging it and then I was like oh well she's a love addict but she's been drugged with love her whole life because she's a woman and she's told like that's how you get your worth and your value and this is a socially acceptable way to destroy yourself Mm -hmm. although as soon as it starts really destroying you people don't like it exactly the sexy parts in this book and Theo the merman Mm -hmm. always said very good things Mm -hmm. had very good bon mots which I didn't think like here's the thing like this is a good book like this is a well written book I am always like a little leery of like literature with a capital L that tries to be sexy that's been written in certainly the last 10 years because I think our relationship with sex and sexuality has gotten so weird since like Henry James and certainly since that guy you know since all the early sexy stuff I think this is a sexy book with sexy stuff and is literature with a capital L. I think she gets self-conscious and veers into the world of too much. Universe is touching me. Universe is touching me. We're a part of the same womb stuff. But like to be like titillated by a character's dialogue hasn't happened for me for a really long time. It's actually a really rare thing to happen in a romance novel to have someone writing actually good dialogue Mm -hmm. that's sexy. Probably because they don't use the word pussy and they should. I can take or leave pussy. I love it when people say vagina and vulva and lips and like use all I thought stuff. I did and then I read pussy and I was like oh this has been missing <laughs> <laughs> readers are different you <laughs> use dirty words the stuff that they bleep out in rap songs on the radio mm. on the radio on the radio it is a very beautiful cover it is a beautiful cover yeah romance or nomance this is a nomance for me would you recommend it to someone very particular human beings in my orbit I would recommend it to everyone I think every man needs to read this Mm. Same way every man needs to listen to our podcast because I think they're all Death. idiots about the inner lives of women. I also think... Sorry, Dad. It's true, though. I love you. Thank you for listening. He'll hear this in six months <laughs> and be like, they're devastated. so behind. I love them. I love it when they call me and they're like, blah, 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 blah. It weirds me out when my dad calls me and is like, what's another episode coming out? Y'all gonna release something this week. Oh, yeah, you listen. <laughs> You love me so much. You love me so much. Please stop. (laughs) Just don't tell me about it. Continue to let me get them out. (laughs) Yeah, could you quietly? Like, don't bring it up. I have this vision of my dad, like, running the errands we used to run together, listening to the podcast and just turning on the volume whenever you talk and acting like it's him and me. That's so sweet. I know, that's what I imagined. But I think I would recommend it to everyone because I think we can spend a lot of our time acting like this inner stuff isn't happening happening and I think it's easy for us to do it whenever it's just inside ourselves and to be like this is fine or this is weird and needs to be a secret something I repress and I think this book has a really 
powerful potentiality to be like this is normal how fucked up is that Mm -hmm. that this is normal like you're not alone and you should fight back against this it really induced me to rage because I couldn't really fault the heroin no you can't fault the heroin you can't fault Lucy but like I think as we talked about earlier like the thing that like really will prevent me from recommending it widely is that it's failed resistance like the fact that she labels one of the women in group chicken horse and then eventually is like oh shit chicken horse is pretty yeah chicken horse has a name I was a dick like yeah. she does come to that realization at the end the and chicken horse end. talks to her and is like hey are you okay she's like listen I know you don't like us but stick with the program and she has a really earnest and confrontational conversation with chicken horse and that's the first time I wish I could remember chicken horse's real name <laughs> but chicken horse is standing out is such a vivid nickname chicken horse ends up being kind of the hero of this book because Sarah the one with her feet she like brought this man back into her life so that she could have an open hearts club boyfriend and then he disappoints her and like Brianne almost falls for a catfish mm-hmm. and like you know chicken horse is the one who's like you know what no I'm checking out entirely I'm not gonna go on a date she's as petty as our heroine because she's like I stood this guy up for a date because he was wearing a newsboy cap which totally get solid choice and then like she's opting out of the rat race for romance and in that moment our heroine Lucy realizes she's like the most capable figured out whole person there Mm -hmm. but you have to culturally degrade yourself in order to do that to be like I just want to be with my pit bulls alone with my parents hopefully she won't have to live in her parents basement forever she and her pit bulls will have a lovely life though I would recommend this to everyone yeah the cover is gorgeous but also it's just so clear right yeah the writing's very very good the perfect merman is so perfectly evil Mm -hmm. in actuality and he doesn't see his own evil which is so great oh he sees it as romantic yeah I'm so seductive I wish she would have asked him more about mermaid sex how mermaids have sex with each other yeah and just like are you hanging out with other mermaids (laughs) what are the other mermaids are we exclusive but also like are the other mermen going around doing this or are the women doing it or is it just you who's like my parents don't get me I'm gonna go kill some human chicks he's very Morrissey People get like so hot for Morrissey and I don't get it. Clearly neither do I. Listeners, let us know. Let us know. Do you get hot for Morrissey? If so, why? Show your work. Show your work. I'm sorry, what? Just show your work. I once read something in Cosmopolitan magazine that affected me for many years. It was like, instead of dressing for your girls, why don't you dress for guys? And then it was like, women like stylish, cutting edge clothing. And like that deeply affected me up until I found the fashion blog Man Repeller. Mm, There you go. (laughs) Which was like an antithesis of that. But then I was like, God, why does Morrissey do what he does? And then I was like, God, men love Morrissey. (laughs) And it goes to show like how successful you can be as a man if you dress for other men and not for women. It's true, men's fashion. And not like just dressing, just like living your life for other men, Mm. which I guess most men do. But Morrissey feels like a really big part of that. On that note, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week.